let's go together. So we say, literally, we would say, let's all go. Ehelekako. Helekako. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, my name is Kelly Edwards. And in English, this is Let's Go Together, a podcast from Travel and Leisure. Our show is all about the ways travel connects us and what happens when you don't let anything stop you from seeing the world. Two of my favorite places on the globe are right here in America, Alaska and Hawaii. From the Arctic Midnight Sun and the Moose and Denali National Park, to the green sea turtles and the active volcanoes on Hawaii's Big Island. These two states are full of natural wonders. They also have rich native cultures, languages, and traditions. As we explore new places, even here in the U.S., it's always important to understand the context we're entering as visitors. When you do that, you show respect for the land you're on and the people it belongs to. You also open yourself up to a whole new level of experience and connection. That's why I'm excited to introduce you to today's guests, two phenomenal ambassadors of Native culture from Hawaii and Alaska. Micah Komahawali'i is an artist, hula teacher, and cultural educator. Aloha mai kako o wao okumu mai kakamohali'i no waimea kainoa kaua ki puupuu mai au hehawai au. So I said, hello, my name is Kumu mai kakamohali'i. I am from Waimea, the land of the ki puupuu rain, and I am a native Hawaiian. I come from Hawaii, and um, specifically Hawaii Island. So that's the one that people know as the Big Island. And Alyssa London is the creator and producer of Culture Story a TV series that highlights Native people and cultures. She's the author of a children's book called Journey of the Freckled Indian. And in 2017, she became the first Clinkett Miss Alaska USA. I made my platform about showcasing the beautiful cultures here in Alaska and then also around the United States and Indian country. Well, I want to introduce myself in Clinkett. Clinkett ayahat yachidiyadi yuchat duwasauch cha'ach nahatsati dachloedi ayahat. What I just said is that I'm Clinket, that my Clinket name is Yachidiyadi, which means valuable child, that my uh, that I'm Eagle Killer Whale, which is my clan and moiety, and that my family is originally from Angoon, Alaska. That word moiety, by the way, is French, and it refers to two groups within the Clinket tribe in southeast Alaska, Eagle and Raven. Alyssa and Micah have traveled the world sharing their cultures and found connections with other Native people along the way. I called them up for an epic conversation, speaking across thousands of miles over Zoom to learn more. So you're both really strong proponents of cultural preservation. What were your own experiences like in the terms of learning about your own language and culture? Where did you get that knowledge and what was the process like? Alyssa, you can go. Thank you. I grew up with my parents wanting me to know who our family is and, and where we come from. And that sentiment has really influenced my interests throughout my life. My mom's side of the family is from a cattle cattle ranch in, in Montana. And so she would expose me to that side of our, our culture as well. But it was my dad's side that I feel became my greatest focus because he was on our tribal corporation's board of directors since I was young. And he also is a Native American lawyer, and I love both of my parents, but I really looked up to my dad because of the work he was doing for our people. One of my earliest memories of 
trying to communicate to other people, my classmates, about my culture was when I did a show and tell about the Clinkett creation story in about second grade. Alyssa kept telling the story beyond second grade. She carried it with her to Stanford University. And I just really wanted my classmates outside of the Native American community to understand that Native people are still here. And it would shock me that, you know, some of my classmates who I considered to be, you know, highly educated people just thought that Native culture didn't exist anymore and that Native people didn't exist anymore. And so I, I felt that it was one of my roles or purposes in life is to help people understand the, you know, the origins of the people of these lands and and also to not let our cultures be forgotten Right. I've definitely spent some time in Alaska, and I can say that the cultural preservation is really strong. Which brings me to you, Micah, because I know that this is absolutely the same in Hawaii. Sure. Yeah. So interesting to hear everything that was just shared because we have gone through the same things. I'm a Native Hawaiian, and um, I'm an educator here. Uh, teaching Hawaiian language, Hawaiian chant and dance, and many different things. So I sit on different boards throughout our state that promotes Hawaiian culture and sustainability and Hawaiian traditions. Many mainland folks never learn in school what happened to Hawaiian culture and traditions and why preservation is so important. Micah graciously broke it down for Alyssa and me. We had a king and queen, and we had a full thriving kingdom and nation, um, a beautiful language, and we had about maybe close to 200 newspapers written in Hawaiian language. Uh, people are very, very advanced in many different ways. Uh, we have a palace in Honolulu that is modeled after uh, Buckingham Palace. We had this big overthrow where American businessmen came and decided to jail our queen and steal the whole kingdom away from all of us. That happened in 1893. The businessmen, backed by U.S. armed forces, were eager to expand American territory and control the market in Hawaiian sugarcane and pineapple. And what happened after the effects of it all was our language ended up getting banded. And so it became the, the law that you couldn't speak Hawaiian in public areas, in schoolhouses, and anything like that. People ended up going to jail if they were caught speaking their own language. By the time the 60s and 70s, uh, 1960s and 70s, there was only about 50 people that spoke Hawaiian language that was left. Hmm. In what became known as the Hawaiian Renaissance, those native speakers and their supporters began to organize. And so 1975-ish, it started to come back. Language schools were created, and now you can go to school from preschool all the way to a PhD program, all in Hawaiian language. Wow. And so I'm proud to say today from the 50 speakers, native speakers, there's probably close to about 30,000 now. That's awesome. As it turns out, Micah's got a connection to this history that helps explain why he's so passionate about representing Hawaii. We'll hear more from him and Alyssa right after a short break.
Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Welcome back to Let's Go Together from Travel and Leisure. I'm Kelly Edwards. As cultural ambassadors and world travelers, Alyssa and Micah are full of surprises. I thought it was really fascinating that you brought up the fact that Hawaii was a kingdom. I mm-hmm. spent a lot of time in Molokai and learned about uh, King Kamehameha. I'm not sure if that's the exact pronunciation, but... Uh, there's an H in there, Kamehameha. Kamehameha. Thank you so much. There you go. And, like, for me, you know, as a person who obviously grew up knowing that Hawaii is one of our 50 states, to know that there was a whole cultural experience over there that involved having a kingdom was something that at first I was really shocked. I literally had no idea. Mm-hmm. Well, just to back up for a second. Uh-huh. So King Kamehameha happens to be my fifth great grandfather. Wow. Um, so I'm from the Kamehameha family line. Oh my. I had no idea that I'm talking to the great, 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 great grandson <laughs> of the king. I know. Like, what are yeah. the chances of that? Royalty. <laughs> Holy, I know you're royalty. This is, I mean, we have Miss Alaska <laughs> and we have the great, 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 great grandson of King Kamehameha yeah. from Hawaii. This is awesome. I'm literally talking to two very important people in our history. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, I really want to highlight what you're saying. There's so much diversity in the Native people in Hawaii and Alaska. They're not monolithic. Can you each share a little bit about that? What are the different groups in the cultures that our listeners should be aware of? Well, in Alaska, there's over 250 different tribes. And that may shock many people because I think that generally when people think of Alaska natives, they might just think of Eskimos. And Eskimo is actually a term that wasn't coined by the native people themselves. It became just a uh, a Western word to describe people of the Arctic. So Alyssa turned her spotlight as a top 10 finalist in the Miss USA contest into a teachable moment. She told the co-host Terrence J. I'm very proud of my culture. And tonight you're going to see me in a traditional clinket robe over my evening gown. And that's just a clip that I'm so proud of because our language has never been spoken on national television. And there was an audience of 3 million people. And I just, I still get messages or calls from native people. I got chill bumps. That's so cool. (laughs) Telling me like, wow, you speaking your language on on that platform just was such a big deal. And that's why I just, our languages, they're just so important because it just, it's kind of like saying, look, our culture still is alive. We're preserving it. We're still here. Awesome. And Micah? You know, in Hawaii, (laughs) I would love to say we have 250 different tribes, but it's just us. It's just one body of people. I think we differ from 
island to island. We have eight islands here. There's more that, that extend up our chain, but there's eight of them that's in our collective that we call our state of Hawaii. And uh, each island has different traditions. Our language is all the same. Our people is all the same. But I think we differ because our because of our geography. So I live on Hawaii Island and I live up in Waimea. So a higher elevation. So on my island alone, you have uh, the people that live by the ocean, which is the people in the Kona district. And they're all fishermen. And they all, they're all darker in skin color because they're always in the sun. Um, and they're constantly on the ocean. They're surfers. They're all of those things. And then you drive around to the area that's called Puna, and that's where our volcano is. And so the people there are a little bit more fiery. You know, they're just like the volcano. You never know when it's going to blow. You know, it, it comes with uh, it comes with earthquakes, so you have to be steady and ready and all those kind of things. And for us on this island, we know where people is from when they come to visit. Or we go into town, we'll see somebody, and we instantly know, oh, they're not from this town. They must be from Hilo. That one must be from Kona. This is from Puna. Like, we can just tell by their demeanor the way they say things, the way they do things, the, the, even the process of how they put their groceries in the car. You know, like, <laughs> we're like, okay, they're not from here. They're from the other side of the island. <laughs> and that's why it's so important not to lump people together because even if we're from the same, you know, race per se or background, it doesn't mean that we are all the same people. And so it's interesting, you know, especially being an African-American woman to hear that from you, you know, being a native Hawaiian, because it's something that's always prevalent. It's like, stop, you know, judging us all based off of, you know, something you've interacted with one person. And so it's, I'm glad that you, you shared that because that's really enlightening. Both of you have traveled the world. I'd love to hear more about that. How has traveling helped you connect with your own culture and other cultures? Alyssa, I know you've written about how studying in Spain helped you realize the interconnectedness of different indigenous cultures. So let's start with you. Yeah, so I got to study abroad uh, when I was in college. That was my first time outside of the United States, Canada, and Mexico. And it totally sparked my love of international travel because I, I was a comparative studies and race ethnicity major with a lot of Native American studies in my coursework. And when I was in Spain, I got to have some access to primary documents, the records from when the Spanish conquistadors were exploring the Americas. And of course, there were already people here, there were Native people. And then also I've gotten to go to the Smithsonian archives through the Museum of the American Indian. And I just feel like I have to get a PhD on <laughs> so I can write this thesis on all of the interconnected knowledge. But just in, in my own travels, then I spent four months backpacking around Central and South America so that I could actually meet like Quechua people in Peru and have conversations. And so right now there are a lot of first person accounts that are corroborated with primary documents that I've read when I got to study abroad. And it's an ongoing passion of mine is to 
you know, when I speak to a person from the Navajo Nation, when I learn that, you know, they use abalone because they traded with my people or Athabascan people or, or when my grandpa tell me about how the massive cedar logs that, you know, we have in Southeast Alaska, how those were useful to the Native Hawaiian people. And my grandfather actually, up until he passed away in October, went to a certain part of Maui for two to three months every year for like the last 30 years because he said he needed to follow the whales and that the whales come to Alaska in the summertime and that they go back to Hawaii in the winter and he needs to be just like the whales. I love that. That's so beautiful. Micah, I have the same question for you because you've lectured and taught around the world, Europe, Japan, Mexico, Alaska, Canada, (laughs) Polynesia. I mean, really? (laughs) Yeah. um, I'm an educator in many different things, but I am um, more famously known for teaching hula. Mm -hmm. So I teach um, dance and not the commercialized dance, but we have different genres of our dance. Um, hula is the term for it all, our dance. But I guess we have like a more ancient style and then a more modern style. And so my dance school and my family, and we're more known for our ancient style, our authenticity and for using the real things when we perform Today, it's so much easier to just go and buy fabric cotton at the store and just sew it into skirts and dance. Um, but it means so much more if you actually have to grow the tree and you have to wait two years and then you strip the bark off the tree and you pound all the bark and you create your own fabric from a tree. Uh, and it takes a three-year process just to do that. So when you're dancing now, it becomes spiritual. So when you watch somebody dance in clothing and everything that they had to die naturally, they had to grow, they had to create. Just watching them walk onto the stage, you're in awe and you can feel what we call mana or that power, that yes, energy. You mana. feel the energy. Yeah, you yes. feel the mana, the energy of, of the dance even before it started because you know that everything was, it took years to get to this point where we're performing. Mm-hmm. Versus if you just went to the store, bought fabric, threw some cotton rope in it and, and danced the song. And that's what got me traveling around the world. So teaching some of the dances that, like my family and my halal, which is our dance school, uh, we do chants and dances that are like seven, 800 years old. You know, songs and chants that are maybe a thousand years old and from the first migration of our people and, and all kinds of things like that. I've taught in Mexico, I've taught in, I mean, all over, I think I've been to 30 countries, uh, most of them for either teaching or performing. We had the opportunity to perform in Paris, in Ireland, in uh, Switzerland, and Italy, and all throughout Europe, and through Polynesia, and in China, and Japan, and Bali. It became my mission to take my students everywhere and, and and get more students and have them go and travel at least one time off to see, open their eyes to what, you know, the whole world has and what it has to offer. Right. What are some ways that visitors can learn about and engage respectfully with the cultures when they visit Alaska and Hawaii? On Alaska, uh, there's a lot of cultural centers. So here in Anchorage, there's Alaska Heritage Center. If you're in Juneau, the Sea Alaska Heritage Institute, which has our museum. And 
one great thing about the Heritage Center is it's created a network of partnerships throughout the state with all of the other more localized uh, heritage groups. And so pretty much every one of our tribes has a well-funded heritage arm that does cultural preservation work because we have the Alaska Native Corporations. So in Alaska, we don't have reservations. We have corporations that control our land and assets that stems from the Alaska Native Claim Settlement Act. That's uh, something that I think people should know about before they come to Alaska. Here in Hawaii, we we have a really good tourism authority, um, the Hawaii Tourism Authority. And on my island specifically, we have the Island of Hawaii Visitors Bureau. You know, I've never ever thought I would work in any kind of tourism. I'm about preserving culture. And I always felt like the more the tourists came, um, the less it was for us or whatever it is that I felt. Then I realized that if I was to work with the tourism in bringing authenticity into tourism, and then when people come, they would be educated on what really is a Native Hawaiian. And then I thought, maybe I should do that. What it did was it changed our tourism, at least on our island of sea. I realized when we traveled the world that people want to see history. They want to learn about a culture. They want to learn. Of course, there's the ones that just want to just go off the beaten path. But most of them want to learn about the history and learn about who these people are and they don't know. And I've had just the time of my life really making sure that things are spelled correctly, spelled correctly so that people pronounce them correctly, putting the story to the, the, the names. You know, people see all the names and they're like, what do these things mean? I feel like you're kind of talking to me because I'm definitely in the off the beaten path, girl. If, <laughs> if there's a sign, if there's something that says don't go, I'm like, what is over there? It's still like my body's like <laughs> carrying me to the place I shouldn't be. <laughs> I, well, I do feel that if you, if you are that kind of person, and find the the right guide. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. It's like it's it's about respecting the land and respecting the culture and sometimes you have to put aside your own wants out of respect for what is. I mean, period. Can I just build on that for a moment? Yeah. So in Alaska, a lot of people come with the cruise ships and I think those are very uh, regimented tours that cause them to stay on like a one singular path, but the other wave of tourists that I, I feel come here um, most often are those that uh, want to experience our wildlife. And usually it's not just to see the wildlife, it's usually to take the wildlife home with them for food. And I just want more people who come to Alaska for our fish and game to think about it not as a trophy, but think about how you are honoring the animal to feed your family. I have to admit that what you just said, it was really beautiful because I I think, you know, a lot of people, especially in modern day, you know, a person like me, I'm just going to go to the grocery store and pick up what I want and, you know, bag it up and run out. But the difference between someone like myself and Native and Indigenous cultures Many still truly live off the land. And because there's a lot of people who don't have that connection, they don't understand how much they should respect the land and the animals. 
all people live off the land. You live off the land. It's just it's disconnected because you don't physically go and hunt the fish. But like, where did that fish come from? So I just want people to all realize everyone lives off the land. And I think what COVID-19 with food shortages, there's going to be even more realization that, you, you know, it's don't take it for granted that you have food at the grocery store. It comes from our ability to take care of Mother Earth. Totally. I think it's managing our resources correctly for our next generation. During our conversation, Micah brought up a Hawaiian word, mana, which means spiritual energy. I felt it personally in my travels to the islands, and I think it's something all visitors should keep in mind. Micah, you talked about something earlier, mana. I experienced that for the first time in the Halawa Valley in Molokai. Are there any specific sacred places in your area that visitors should be aware of? And how can tourists be responsible when visiting and respect the area? And how does this, how do you take steps to actually enhance the experience? I remember, you know, when I was learning about the Halawa Valley, I was told about, you know, filling mana and actually feeling like I experienced it once I reached my destination, I, I couldn't quite explain that. The only other time that I've experienced that was when I was on a former plantation in Sapelo Island off the coast of Georgia. There's something sometimes being in, in sacred places and spaces that just kind of overcome your spiritual being. You know, I think we have so many. We have so many all throughout Hawaii. And, and I think they become sacred and special and manaful. I just in Hawaiian English, that word. But <laughs> um, because of all of the things that had happened there in, in its history. So all of the people that had prayed there, all the people who had left their energies there for thousands of years. And so when you come into that space, you end up feeling all of that think all the vibrations that resonate in the area. Um, there's so many around our state. Um, some of the very obvious ones are our temples, and we call them heiau. For people who come with a closed mind, they don't understand that a pile of rocks could ever be a temple. We're earth worshipers, that we practice the movements of our earth, and our universe is everything around us. Um, and we honor everything that's around us, the trees, the rocks, the ocean, the wind, the dirt. Micah says it's about letting everything out and letting Hawaii in. If you are traveling correctly, if you go to a place with an open mind and you allow all of your everything out and let Hawaii in, it, it really changes your, your life, I think. You know, you let a little bit of it in it starts to um, affect the rest of your life where things are not so stressful anymore. If you go back to that place where you go, oh, I remember when I was in Hawaii, this is what I experienced. And you hold on to it forever. It can really change your life. Places like Waipio Valley, Halava Valley, Molokai. For Waipio Valley, I feel like when you go down into the valley, it's almost like you go through this veil that just lifts everything off of you and throws it up on the top. And when you get into the valley, you left all your worries on, at the lookout point on the top. And when you're in the valley, you have to be present. And um, it's, it's something that forces, forces you to do it. 
It's not like you have a choice. It just happens. And, and I think that's what mana is. It's that power. It's that energy. You know, and that's the beauty of Hawaii, I think, and the beauty of Native people around the world is they have the ability to connect to their environment around them. And, and I think as long as you just be present and, um, and you do as the locals do, then you'll be fine. I could really talk to the both of you for hours. <laughs> this is so much insightful and necessary information, especially for me personally, because these are two places that I really love to explore and, and really connect with in nature. I love languages. So before I let Alyssa and Micah go, I asked them to teach me a few words in Hawaiian and clink it. The way that we say thank you is gunashish. Uh, we don't have a one word to say hello. But if everyone could remember how to say gunashish as the same way as cottage cheese, then that is the easiest way to remember it. <laughs> oh, I love that. Thank you. And Micah. So we say aloha. Aloha is the word for many different things. It's not technically hello, but it is the way that we greet each other here. It means, um, I guess it could mean hello, but it means um, greetings. It means love, all of those things. When we break down the word aloha, alo means face, ha means breath. And so when, if you see Native people, um, the Native Alaskans, I think they do this as well, but when we greet people, we actually put our face on the other person's face. So we press our nose and our forehead onto yes. the other person, and then we exchange breath. So we inhale and we Ex exchange yes. breath. So, so it's a way that we exchange life forces. You're both <laughs> master communicators and like sharing so much culture and you you're both so like in depth with it that that was this was great thank you thank you for having yeah, us thank you that's all for this episode of let's go together a podcast by travel and leisure i'm your host kelly edwards you can learn more about Alyssa at her website alyssalondon.com and find micah at dbkamoho a l i i dot com. Thanks to our production team at Pod People: Rachel King, Eliza Lambert, Susie Armitage, Lena Beck-Sillison, and Cheryl Duvall. This show was recorded in Los Angeles, edited in New York City, and can be found wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more at travelandleisure.com slash podcast. You can find Travel and Leisure on Instagram at Travel and Leisure, on Twitter at Travel Leisure and on TikTok at Travel and Leisure Mag. And if you're looking for me, I'm Kelly Set Go Everywhere. And that's Kelly with two E's on the end.